Hey guys, this is Ida Josefina, and you're listening to Say New World. Today, I'm speaking with Jerry Mikulski. Jerry is the founder of Open Global Mind, a project to help humans make better decisions together, and Rel8, a project to crowdsource a shared memory to serve that same purpose. He is also an expert on trust. Jerry was on the front lines of the tech revolution for a dozen years as tech industry trends analyst during the dot-com boom, as managing editor of Esther Dyson's newsletter, Release 1.0. He also advised corporate advanced technology groups on whether and where to deploy exponential technologies like machine intelligence. One of the more than 4,000 startups Jerry interviewed had a useful mind mapping app called The Brain. Intrigued, Jerry began curating his brain then over 25 years ago. Now, today, it's the world's largest with over 535,000 entries. From this mix of movements and ideas, Jerry is creating what he calls Design from Trust, a process that can be applied in many different domains. This project's home base is Open Global Mind. In this episode, Jerry and I discuss the impact of his discovery of system thinking in grad school, influences from Russell Acoff and Alice Miller, the lens through which Jerry viewed the world as the managing editor of Esther Dyson's newsletter, and how he became a cyborg through 25 years of curating his second brain. We also talk about the future, how we hope certain developments in tech can lead us to a better path of self-fulfillment and wanting to think about the future of work more as the future of creativity rather than pure productivity. Talking to Jerry is always such a pleasure. I hope you guys enjoy this episode and as usual, don't be scared to reach out and tell me your thoughts. Now I bring you Jerry Mikulski. Okay, I'm here with Jerry Mikulski. Jerry, it's super nice to have you on the podcast officially. It's awesome to be here. Thank you. I love talking with you. Good. Um, well, um, there's so many things that we could start with and so many things to cover. Just for listeners, as context, Jerry and I have had uh, quite a few conversations before where we've just gone into various different directions Uh relating to our mutual interests. So, um, but because this podcast is really about the sort of like meta layers of, of context and how ideas um, come to be and, and about the pursuit of ideas, I think we could just start in certain places of things that I know about you, Jerry, and then see where the conversation takes us. Sounds delightful. Happen? Perfect. Um, great. So maybe just to begin with, I'd love for you to tell our listeners um, a little bit about your background, just so that they get a sense of um, who they're listening to. So yeah, what do you, what kind of things are you thinking about currently? What do you care about? And how did you get here wow. <laughs> in more or less words? <laughs> I know I'll, I'll try to be crisp about it. Uh, so I have a funny twisty background. I have an undergraduate in e economics, which really is about e econometrics. Cause I listened to the economic theory stuff and I'm like, this doesn't pencil out. And it wasn't until behavioral economics many years later, I'm like, oh, they're starting to discover maybe a little bit of useful info about economics. Then I went to business school and on my degree, it says international business. But really, there was this little pirate department attached to the business school run by a guy named Russell Acoff, who was one of the very first systems thinkers. And my housemate second year says, come with me, you have to go listen to this guy. <clears throat> so we sit down at a seminar table with like four grad students and Acoff, and he proceeds to explode my brain for the first time many years ago. And then somehow, I think it was my dad's curiosity. I'm an intensely curious person. And I just kept finding people would recommend something and I would kind of absorb it. So uh, an early girlfriend mentioned Janet Leadloff and the continuum concept and Alice Miller's theories about uh, childhood uh, and, and so forth. And I, I, I was like, I was very absorbent 
to those kinds of ideas. And it wasn't until much, much later, ruminating on all the things that all the ideas or the people whose ideas have become like my inspirations, that I realized that I cared about um, trust and I cared about how we build knowledge together. And those are kind of the activities, the two activities that shape my world right now. Then along the way, I had work, I did a bunch of different things, found my way into technology uh, analysis, not uh, not securities analysis. I don't care and can't tell you what next quarter's earnings are going to be from anybody, but I really care about how organizations should or shouldn't implement artificial intelligence. I recently found a report that I wrote in 1988 titled Neural Networks uh, Prospects for Commercial Use which was a state of the art of neural networks. And I, I became like the neural networks analyst at a little company in Connecticut back then for five years before I joined Esther Dyson and became her analyst, her managing editor for her newsletter. So it's kind of, that's, that's kind of how I made my sort of little footprint in, in the tech field was by mostly for working for Esther because she was very visible. She was kind of the doyenne of the tech business back in the day. Um, and then Two things happened to me in the five years that I'm working for Esther, five and a half. One of them is one of the 4,000-odd startups that I saw pitch me their wares in the hope that I would write about them had this mind map called The Brain. And uh, my my wet brain saw The Brain as soon as the demo started and was like, oh, 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 I think like that. And so I wrote about them in the newsletter, invited them to a conference, and began using their software, which I still use today. Um, and then the second thing was I realized I didn't like the word consumer. And I mentioned that to Esther, and she was like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a term of art in advertising. And my little inner voice said, uh, no, it's not. This is actually really important. And it turns out it's really important. And I've been, everything I know now and care about as a point of view comes from the fact that I paid attention to my discomfort with the word consumer back in the mid-90s. Mm, okay. There's a lot to unpack there. I think that the first thing that I was thinking about was like, uh, when you said that you started, uh, you learned about systems thinking back in school, and then you became a technology analyst, and the way that you describe sort of what you've done since then, do you think that that is systems thinking? Do you, is that what became sort of your profession, or how would you define the, how would you define the systems thinking? Yeah, exactly. I, I My own experience of talking to systems thinkers is that if you scratch three systems thinkers and ask them what systems thinking is, you'll get six definitions. It's it's kind of all over the place. Um, I don't. I haven't found one happy one. But to me, it's like looking at how things connect at the broadest scales, at the meta scale sometimes, and understanding what the what the, how those dynamics work and how you might influence them. Um, and so, yes, I, I think I would consider myself a systems thinker, but I don't have a systems theoretic degree. Um, and then and then once you follow any of the sort of uh, individual disciplines like complexity theory or uh, other things like that, once you follow those, I feel like you get boxed in somehow and, and it limits your, your systemic thinking in some strange way. Um, also, there's a couple of famous people who are systems thinkers, the Cabreras and others who develop these systems thinking frameworks, which I admire. But I'm not I'm not an adherent of their models because again I, I find sometimes I, I know a lot of people who love intellectual models but live by them, and I I trying to I'm sort of syncretic in my use of them. I'm trying to say how do we piece together something that makes sense from all these models, um, but allowing many of them to kind of coexist and be useful when they're when they're most useful. Yeah. Well, what's the answer? <laughs> I, if only I knew. Uh, the answer is, why, why can't we learn to trust each other again? Um, because 
if we don't figure that one out, all the other things that we're facing as a civilization are going to tromp us yeah. badly. Yeah, completely agree. Um, collective intelligence for all. Yeah, which requires some small degree of trust. It doesn't require a huge breakthrough in trust. It just requires us to be able to listen to one another in good faith. Yeah. So how are you thinking about this problem? Like, what's like, are there any rabbit holes that you could share? Of how um, you've been plenty. It's, it's like a landscape full of rabbit holes that I inhabit. Uh, so there's a bunch of people thinking about debate, discourse, argumentation, um, and all those kinds of things. And there's uh, websites I can point you to and friends of ours who are doing that kind of work. Uh, and it's God's own work. Uh, some of these people, like James Fishkin, are doing deliberative polling, which is a really interesting process for getting people together over a couple weekends. And it's one of the few public processes that shows shifts in points of view, shifts in opinion during the process, which is really important. Like, if all you do is bring people together and they go home and go, well, that was interesting, you really haven't, haven't won anything. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of a, this brain software that I use lets me become a curator or collector of things that I see out in the world that are working. Uh, and, and I don't know which of these debate or discourse sites is the best, and I don't know that there is going to be one, but I'm really interested in people comparing notes. So mm -hmm. then kind of a part of the place where you and I met was through this notion of tools for thinking. And there are a wild and wide variety of tools for thinking out there. Um, and I'm really interested in how they're different from each other. And I want somehow for people to be able to find their way to the one that represents how they think best, but then to come into the middle of the room or the landscape and share what they know with other people in some way that makes sense. And out of that, we might be able to build ways of helping cities revitalize themselves, ways of learning that don't involve the current compulsory education system, ways of uh, governing ourselves that don't involve uh, elections that are bought and sold. All those kinds of things are broken largely in our community, and we even disagree about how they're broken and how to fix them. So if we don't figure out how to compare notes, we won't make a lot of progress on these things. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a, it's a sort of like developing a shared language that is um, could be somehow universal and connect different peoples and their systems and ways of thinking from a huge amount of um, different sources, no? Uh, yes, but failing a common language, meaning that you and I agree uh, on what certain terms mean and use the same terms to mean the same things, at least understanding where we differ. So that, I remember a really long time ago, I, I did a consulting study in uh, health insurance and we were counting subscribers. And we were throwing the word around. And then it turns out that, well, <clears throat> do you mean active paid subscribers? Or but there's a whole bunch of people who are kind of active, but they haven't, they're, they're overdue. Like, as soon as you got down into what do, what do you actually mean by this word, it turned out that there was a wide variety and you needed to agree on the details. And I don't know that we as a civilization have the luxury of agreeing on the details, but we need to figure out when we're actually disagreeing in different ways. Right. Yeah. And so the brain, you've been using it now. It wasn't, didn't you celebrate the 25th, your 25th anniversary of using the, the exactly. brain? Exactly. So just a, uh, last December was actually 25 years since I started using the brain software. And uh, a couple months ago, so a little past that anniversary, we had a, a webinar with the, the founder of the brain celebrating their 25 years of existence and my 25 years of using their software, uh, which was really fun. And I, um, I found 
in, I have a couple of time capsule boxes that I kept for years and opened recently. And I found in one of them, the, the packet of literature they mailed me to confirm our appointment in December of 97. And, you know, so-and-so, these two people will show up in your office. We're looking forward. Here's our, here's like the blurbs and stuff. I also saved the packet a few months later where they reprinted the article I wrote about them in our newsletter after that first visit. And I was wearing a t-shirt that Harlan, the inventor had sent me for the 20th anniversary back when. So it was wow. really fun. It, it was fun to sort of think back on uh, use of, of, of their tool for a while. And then I'm, I'm quirky in my use of the brain in the sense of I only have one brain file. I don't have multiples. Most everybody else has many. Uh, and also, I've, been, I've stuck to this one tool for a quarter century. And there's very few people out there who've like been using one thing. Like Mark Carranza has been using his homegrown system for longer than me. Um, but nobody, almost nobody else is using that system and has, has sort of access to the data. So it's, it's a really interesting journey. Yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, I've seen... You've sort of demoed to me how you actually use the brain. So maybe you could open that up a bit because you put quite uh, literally almost everything that you come across in there, if not everything. Um, so I have a filter, which is, is this worth remembering? I don't, I don't want to clutter the brain space. And, and anybody who's listening, you can go to jerrysbrain.com uh, and browse my brain for free. Just click on the button that says launch Jerry's brain. Uh, you can also go to bra.in slash jerry in lowercase, that's a shortcut to the same place. Uh, and that will take you into my brain so you can go look around. And I, I do have a filter because I, I'm very mindful that this is a namespace. The thing that makes my brain useful is that I can start typing stuff and the brain has a very quick type down buffer that will show me all the thoughts in this one brain that have a particular, whatever string I'm typing. And I know I know how I've named things because I'm the only person who's fed this particular brain. So I know the short phrases that I can use to get to something very, very quickly. Uh, and I'm extremely aware that if I mess up the namespace, I screw up the whole utility of the tool. So the brain early on had a capacity to, you, know, you could crawl a website and create a new thought, a new node for every page in the website and have links between them. I've never, ever used that. You could mm. crawl your Explorer or Finder. You could crawl your, finds, your, your file system. I've never, ever used that because I'm, again, mindful that the namespace is crucial to the utility of the tool. And then when I'm adding things to it, I think of two audiences. There's me, obviously, but then I've been publishing my brain online openly for free for years. And so I'm always thinking, is this going to be useful to somebody else stumbling in? And how do I name this or connect this in a way that will make it more useful to other people? How do I... Yeah. How do, I, uh, how do I curate, garden, uh, sort of touch this thing to, to increase its utility in, in its context? Yeah. It's interesting because when I read, like if I, I read a lot on Kindle and specifically on my iPad on Kindle Me too. or even my computer, I don't yep. use the like Kindle machine little thing because it's not... It's not dynamic and versatile enough for me to get like the utility that I need out of it. So I really prefer it either on the computer or on the iPad. Precisely. And the way that I work with it is I um, pick like a default highlighter color uh, per book and I change it because I get really sick. If it's like the pink all the time, I'm just like, oh, I'm so sick of you pink. So then yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of sort of alternate them. And then let's say that I'm working with like default yellow highlighter. I just highlight everything that sounds to me somehow like, uh, interesting or beautiful or memorable that in a way can like it functions as a standalone thing so sometimes I um, highlight an entire paragraph or then just 
a sentence, never half a sentence, because for me, that doesn't make sense. And you need the entire sort of like yeah. thing around it for it to like function as a standalone thing. But I think my theory with all of this is that if I just publish the highlights, oh, so I have this, like, I have like the sort of default highlights. And then let's say I could use an orange if uh, for highlighting everything that I need to look up later, if it's like names or terms or whatever I might be unfamiliar with. So that's mm -hmm. sort of like the action highlights. And um, the way that I think about it is that if I just like exported all of the highlights, it would be like, it would work, like it was function both for me and as someone else using it as like a, as something, if not like super informative, at least something maybe a little bit inspiring or interesting in, in some way. So I'm curious about when you think about like how you use the brain to actually, when you, when you're developing new ideas or when you're thinking through things or when you're working, like what is the relationship between you and the brain and how, how does that help you actually, um, yeah, come up with new ideas? Do you use Readwise or any other software that connects your Kindle notes out to the rest of the world? No, I don't. I feel like I'm really, really, really bad at adopting new tools. I don't really like to use tools, which is uh -huh. really funny considering what my job is. But that is funny. I'm like, well, that's actually why we're building like sane in like the most simple way possible for like the yeah. mass audiences that doesn't require any tinkering because I just don't like, I don't personally, I just don't like, I might download them and then like use them once and then I never go back to it because mm -hmm. it just doesn't do it for me um I totally hear so you. yeah <laughs> uh, so so i've been using readwise for years but not the but i don't pay them i just use the free version which means i don't get a lot of the benefit of what i'm doing um so i highlight a bunch in in books and i read also in kindle i, I these days when i get a new book i almost always buy kindle um, partly because I can highlight and do something with it, but then I don't have the final link, so I can't take the read the Readwise link and add it to my brain, for example. I I, I never do that. Uh, right. Partly partly because I, I should probably just pay Readwise, um, <laughs> but also I have a whole trope about <clears throat> how books and PDFs are where information goes to die, um, and books are kind of the highest artifacts of our civilization. It's like smart people write books and they put their best ideas into those books. And that's like what we do at the pinnacle. And then we go wrap these books in digital rights management software and we make it really hard to actually put those ideas to work. And then we overprotect copyright and we like, really, it's a mess. And I'm all about how do we liberate the ideas and how do we put them to work for us? Um, yes. So how do, how do we make that actually all come together? And the brain is the closest I've come to a tool that lets me associate and build context and remember and find and curate and all those kinds of things. <clears throat> but then it kind of taps out at different places. It runs out of oomph. It runs out of capacity for doing things. And I wish it, I wish it could do more things. Uh, for example, I think storytelling is really, really important. And my favorite storytelling tool for a long time was Prezi. And mm. some people have probably used Prezi. It's a little Hungarian company that changed its user interface dramatically twice in its little lifetime. Uh, once they made it look a little bit more like PowerPoint, but it was still completely useful. So I was like, okay, okay, fine. And then a couple of years ago, they sort of lobotomized the tool. And the endless whiteboard that I could kind of zoom into and connect and play with somehow vanished on me. I, I tr tried to go in and do what I used to do because I was kind of magical with it. I didn't have to think about the tool, which is, I'm working a lot these days on what does it mean to be a good cyborg? And that I believe that our future is very cyborg because we're going to be melding with technology a lot more than we already have. And we already have a lot, right? Yeah. So, so the brain is not a great storytelling tool. And I've, I've, since I had to abandon Prezi, I went back to the brain and 
when I'm showing people something in the brain, I know where the little red thread is that connects things through it, but I can't hide all the extra extraneous information that shows up in the brain screens you know, as I'm busy navigating my path through the story I want to tell. Now, the good news is if somebody's really paying attention, they might be able to follow it, and then they know to go back to my openly published brain to dive in because I've got right. links to the articles I'm citing, the videos I looked at, whatever. It's all right there. You can just go back to the original materials. Um, and so and so your, your general question was like, what is this relationship between me and my brain? And, and for me, it's this external memory that is just very comfortably nestled next to my onboard memory. And it hasn't replaced my onboard memory. In fact, it's strengthened it. Because one of the things I find is that every time I add something to my brain, it helps me remember the thing better because it throws me into system two thinking. System one thinking, mm. this is from Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. System one thinking is our quick knee-jerk instinctive response and is often wrong. System two thinking is when you have to slow down, engage the gears and start going, okay, okay, what, what, how do I reason my way through this? And when I'm curating something new into my brain, I have like, where does, is it worth remembering? Where does it go? What do I call it? What do I connect it to? What else can I learn? Ooh, I'm going to Google this. <clears throat> and I, I can do that little loop really very, very, very quickly um, and add new things. And the act of doing so burns the things better into my wet brain. And then the act of going back and looking at different parts. Of, I was just looking at uh, the, uh, a new a giant from uh, Greek mythology. So I was looking at Greek mythology in my brain. And that that's refreshing my wet brain about those kinds of things. So in some interesting way, this external brain is extremely complementary and empowering rather than, oh my gosh, we're going to out, we're going to, well, the, the question right now around chat GPT is, should we be note-taking at all? Is that obsolete? Um, there's a tab open in my browser about, is Tiago Fortes build a second brain obsolete now? Because people are just going to query like the, the, the great new super intelligence in this, in the cloud. I'm like, no. Let's not outsource our, our like our memories and our belief systems to the cloud. Let's figure out how to do both together, because I think yeah, these, I, mean, I think that yeah, GPT you wouldn't is know how powerful. to use it. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't know how to use the Chat GPT if you didn't have all of those sort of like associations and rooted ideas and beliefs into something. So I feel, well, let me let me rephrase that. It's um, the more knowledge and associations and ideas that you have in any given topic, the more in a, in a more sophisticated way are you able to uh, rely on technology for support on developing those ideas. And that's the thing that came to mind when you were explaining the brain. It just seems that what you're talking about is uh, making associations both sort of in the real world and then also making associations in your sort of digital realm. And then you're flipping between these two different environments um, constantly. And that's super interesting because actually your description of how you use the brain reminds me a lot about how I work with stuff, but instead of it being on the brain, it's actually like a combination of um, sort of real physical objects as well as things on the internet. So for example, I think it was like two weeks ago, it was a Saturday and I was uh, writing an essay and I was thinking about something that I had re uh, read in a, in a book a very, very, very long time ago. And I remembered that within this book that I had like a physical copy of, it was towards the end of the book where there was this idea that related to an idea that I was working with. So it was actually like a physical position for an idea that I knew that existed in there. And I, 
And I remembered a bunch of associations related to it, but I didn't remember the thing in itself. And so I found it and I took it and then I compared it to um, a few other things that were like uh, 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 like uh, notes and Google searches and actually even a piece of music that I was listening to at that time that I remember I was listening to when I started thinking about these things uh, the first time, which was actually quite a long time ago, like in 2018. So it sounds like that sort of experience of me flipping through a book and listening to uh, I'm arousing different sensations. And that is sort of what you are in a or correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that's in a sense what you're doing on the brain. I think so. Um, and I bet that when you, <clears throat> when you were thinking about where this thing was, you could remember which part of the page it was on. Yes. <clears throat> it was like on the upper left corner of, of the, the book as I was reading it. Cause that, cause we have this incredibly nice spatial memory. We kind of remember location context setting. It's why people who study, they're studying for exams, they'll play different music for different uh, subjects and they'll, they'll sit in a different place because they know that their surround is like that. Um, I've met a couple of people who are, who have synesthesia, which is sort What's of sensory, sen it's sensory fusion. It, when they hear music, they see colors. Um, mm. And there's a, a bunch of other things that can happen for them. Uh, it, it's a rare gift in some sense. And I don't have that at all. I'm, I'm probably way too logical. And I've, I've, I'm sure that I've kind of grooved paths for how I use the brain that keep me from seeing other kinds of things. And part of what I'm trying to do now is talk to people who know more about indigenous wisdom and ritual and somatic uh, sort of approaches toward, uh, toward wisdom or knowledge or coming into a community, because I think those things are like enormously important. And I'm not gonna think my way out of this problem. I, I need to like feel, sense and connect in other ways as well. And the brain, yeah helps me catalog those things, but doesn't help me do those things at all. I have to do those things outside separately in some way. Right. Are you into in this sort of world of mindfulness, meditation, psychedelics, any of that kind of mind altering? So just pre-pandemic, my wife and I were about to go do like psilocybin or something and then bad thing pandemic hit. So we haven't quite done it yet. But I think, I think for me, that's like definitely on the list of things to do. Um, I, I don't do a daily meditation practice, but when I wash dishes, for example, and, and I'm sort of the cook in the house, but I also clean up, um, I use washing dishes as mindfulness practice and a couple other things like that. Um, when I'm walking someplace, I will uh, think about my pace and my weight on, uh, you know, on the planet kind of thing. A long time ago in grad school, I took a tiny bit of Tai Chi. And one of the things you learn in Tai Chi is where your weight is and how to shift your weight very consciously. So I'll, I'll do some of that, uh, but not a lot more than that. And, mm. and I will also confess that I'm eminently distractible. I, uh, I have shiny object syndrome because I'm just madly curious about everything. And then I get this little dopamine reward every time I find a puzzle piece in the world and I curate, connect, garden it in the right place. And I, I'm like, I get this little, this little hit of satisfaction. It's like, oh, okay. So that's where that goes. And I've put it into a place in my brain where at least it's visible to the outside world, right? Yeah. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, Tiago Forte's second brain is his private external brain. His third brain is the one for the public. And he posts things right. to there, you know, out, out there occasionally. And it's like, I, when I heard that, I was like, wait, 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 wait. My, the default setting for everything I put in my brain is public. I have to mark a special mark in order to make something private so nobody else will see it. And that, yeah. was, that was kind of like, oh, maybe I'm a little different. <laughs> that was a, a brief, <laughs> brief An insight. overshare that we all yeah, love. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
Have you ever just taken a break for a significant period of time from the brain and seen what happens uh, to your thinking? Great question. There've been a couple moments where at most for a month, I couldn't use the brain because something had broken and they needed to fix the software. Uh, there was one moment early on where I could no longer add anything to my brain. And, and I, I, I had 32,767 thoughts. And I looked at that and I'm like, I know this number. And I wrote Harlan, the developer, and he's like, Jerry, you've just exceeded the word size we used for the namespace. So he fixed that and I was able to keep going and I haven't hit that problem since. But I've never on purpose uh, set it aside for a while. Um, so the answer to that is no. And and one of my problems is I, I like, like to sort of keep continuity for current events and for other kinds of things that are going on uh, by adding them to my brain. And and yeah. one of the one of the, the settings I, I've been changing mentally is what degree of, of detail am I actually uh, saving? So I, if, if I save less detail, I get my time back. Yeah. I, what have you learned? Like, um, because obviously I think, I think you're a little bit of a niche person <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to how you, um, yeah, relate with information in this way. I, I don't think that there's anyone else in the world who has a second brain this large. And I think that's, that's quite unique. Is there something that, you think that you've really learned from this process that you would like other people to apply, um, considering that, for example, I don't see myself doing something like this just because of what I was explaining to you, how I sort of relate with ideas more through, I guess, like sen like sensations or feelings. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of like have this, I think like um, in a way, like a spatial network in my mind of how ideas are connected, but they're really connected through feeling. And I can't, or I wouldn't necessarily want to connect those sort of like feeling-based ideas in any sort of piece of technology. Um, but I'm I'm curious for like if you have if you would have any advice for me or anyone else that isn't necessarily like a a very um, big tinker with these types of tools for thinking about what you've learned in the process that might be very helpful for yeah just existence. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so first thing I'll say is, um, and I say this often when I demo my brain, don't be daunted by the fact that I have 25 years invested in something that has half a million nodes in it. Um, it's useful very early on. And part of the joy of using a tool like this is developing your own little tropes, your own little habits or cl cliches, whatever you want to call them, of how you're going to do things. Because the brain doesn't dictate. It's not a, it doesn't have a formal taxonomy or ontology or anything like that in it. You could use it that way, but that's if you were an ontologist and I am not. Um, second thing is, every now and then I'll have, I'll have, have a, like an insight because I'm using the brain. Years ago, I was trying to look uh, into Brian Arthur's ideas about increasing returns dynamics, and there wasn't much available. He hadn't really written very much about it, but I, I sort of had connected it under feedback and feedback loops. And then next to feedback loops, I also had sort of uh, basically failure states of, of when you have a uh, negative dynamics. And um, Vicious cycles, that's what the term was. And I suddenly connected the two things laterally, and I realized <clears throat> that, mm. uh, for instance, for office suites back in the day, before Microsoft invents the office suite, there's competition with Novell and, Word, and uh, WordPerfect and all that kind of stuff, and Lotus. And suddenly, the office suite creates these increasing returns dynamics for Microsoft, which are a vicious cycle for everybody else in the industry. I'd never connected those two things, that, that when one goes up, the other, everybody else is basically getting sucked under. That was interesting, and I've had lots of little moments of insight like that. And then third thing, um, 
there's kind of also this, I have learned firsthand that, uh, that information, if curated well, accrues and improves. And so um, there's a thought in my brain that says, we outsourced our memory to Google and Wikipedia years ago, and that was a mistake. We were like, oh, I don't need to remember this because I'll just search for it and find it. Well, guess what? Things only kind of stay in Google search if they have inbound links, if they have juice from other sites. And a lot of very interesting things get no inbound love. So they don't show up in Google searches anymore, but I can find them. And if their websites are broken or gone, I go to the Internet Archive, and then I can put in any URL. And 80% uh, of the time, the archive will have saved an old version of that page, and I can find the text again, which is terrific. All I really want is the content of the page. So... So then imagine, think of the, the f three questions or the six questions that are the burning questions of your life, personally, your own life. And then imagine that the best things you'd found around those questions were just at your fingertips whenever you wanted. And that the more you elaborated the points made within those documents or essays or whatever, the more you could connect them across and see the patterns that light up across. And so you were saying that you sort of sense things. Um, for, for me, I'm a, I'm a pattern hound. I see patterns. And uh, one mm. of my kind of superpowers is telling stories from extremely different disciplines or worlds that are, in fact, connected because it's the same pattern. <clears throat> and you might be able to borrow something from uh, what the people over there are doing in city planning and use it for software design, which is what Dick Gabriel did with pattern languages. He basically brought... Uh, pattern languages over from architecture and urban planning into software and said, yeah. hey, people, let's use this. And and now software developers love patterns more than most architects. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, do you think that this is very inherently human or how do you think about the, how do you think about cyborgs and non-cyborgs or where is that sort of difference come from? Yeah. Uh, I, the cyborg thing is fascinating to me. And um, I'm not afraid of our cyborg future. I'm sort of leaning into it, looking looking forward to it. And that probably has a lot to do with my very positive experience, in particular with the brain software. Because I, and, and one of the questions I ask is, hey, are you, do you have like spreadsheet magic where, where you can do really beautiful, elaborate spreadsheets and you stop thinking about the tool and how to find a command, but you're just acting on numbers and pivot tables and whatever, or Photoshop, or Lightbox, or name your piece of software. That, and some people are just so good at a particular piece of software that the software disappears and they have superpowers, right? So that to me is, is a piece of where we're headed, that, that now we have um, this, this generative AI thing took a, just a big step up in December of last year. And it's been in the pipeline. I said that I, that I wrote a report about neural networks in 1988 the technology that we're using now is the descendant of that technology back then. And so it's been bubbling on the pot on this, on the range for that long. And suddenly it kicked up to a level where um, from GPT 3.5 to 4.0, it's actually capable of performing things we didn't expect. And we need to figure out how to make it not replace all humans, but augment human work so that drudge work goes away um, quick first drafts are like, boom, hey, look, here's something to work with. And everybody who's terrified of blank pages when they sit down to write an essay doesn't need to have a blank page anymore. They could have six different revs on a particular idea and then pick the one that, that, that smells best to them and go edit. So I think, it, I think it will change how we work a lot. And it's also going to obsolete a lot of different kinds of work. And it's really hard to predict how, why, when, where. 
if I were graduating from college right now, I'd be like, holy shit, what do I, like, did I get the right degree? What have I learned? A whole bunch of people learning programming right now. Is that yeah. going to go away? So, so, so our cyborg future is at the same time uh, really scary and really promising. Yeah, I yeah I completely agree. We've been talking a lot about at, at Sane and just with the team about what the future of work means and sort of how we've been thinking about that is that the future of work is really about the future of creativity. And I personally really hope that uh, we can sort of take this moment of intense disruption for many people and and societies at large and to use it as an opportunity to really redefine the essence of what it means to be human and stop thinking of ourselves in this way of just being functionaries or cogs in a wheel and workers and living in this world of total labor and total work and to uh, potentially like reestablish a new essence for what it means to be human that I hope is much more creative, much more filled with pleasure, because I think pleasure really enables people to think uh, more open-mindedly and to sort of dig deeper to understand who they are and um, what their relationship with the world is in many different ways. And I think that that really is the key to not only sort of uh, unlocking much more brighter and better futures for individuals, but also uh, making significantly better decisions as a society and sort of getting out of this um, age of heightened risk. And, um, you know, I've talked a lot about existential risk. It's something I'm really concerned about. Uh, and it completely relates to the collective intelligence piece. And it's not so much about more data, more analytics, more information, but rather about how us as individuals and as a collective and as a society can um, think of ourselves uh, in relationship to one another and the future as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything you just said. Um, sometimes I describe my journey as having started in the mid nineties when I realized I hated the word consumer and the yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I yeah. The consumerization of our world is a light bulb that's slowly turned on in my head and the, the impacts it's had on us were a late realization also. But I realized that we are now being treated. Um, uh, Barry Lynn, who runs a, a, an, an interesting uh, think tank out there, can tell you um, which philosopher influenced, which economist influenced, which policymaker influenced whoever to, to shift how we see citizens into consumers. So we are now consumers of medicine, consumers of education, consumers of, of, of government. Um, the reason that all these people running for office want a lot of our money is that they're going to run ads in different places. And if they don't run enough ads against the other people, they're going to lose because the ads sort of work their magic on our brains, right? And the ads are often completely disconnected from reality, from what's actually happening. So a piece of this alienation was happening before ChatGPT, before any of this AI, and has little or nothing to do with it. Um, for me, uh, this major transformation that that kind of debilitated and separated us from one another was the shift into consumerism as the holy grail of American culture. And once you stop thinking of yourself as a citizen with interdependence with your other citizens and a responsibility to go sort things out with them, whether you like them or not, and your only job as a consumer is to buy more stuff whether you need it or not, once you leave that territory, you're in, in sort of the wilds and lots of dangerous things can happen because, hey, you've lost your concern for helping make civilization more civil. 
right? And so, so I think that these tools that are now showing up have the promise of bringing us back to that space or just um, going behind the curtain and, and, you know, manipulating us more than before because they're smarter about us than before, uh, blurring the difference between reality and these hallucinations that these machines are so good at doing. There's a whole mm. bunch of dangers that are, that are lurking right, right around us. Um, and I think that part of what we need to do is come together into conversations like this, but on a larger scale. Um, one of the things I'm thinking of standing up is a community of cyborgs. Um, who have discussions about the ethics of AI, for example, and who might then maybe um, come together and say, hey, we're going to go put out a public statement or influence people and try to say, don't do this, don't do that. Because I look, yeah. I look now at, at programmers, right? There's millions and millions and millions of programmers, most of whom haven't had an ethics course, and many of whom are being asked by their managers to go write code that is unethical. Yeah, well, it's the same sort of outcome-orientated, uh, results-orientated mindset that uh, what I was referring to by the sort of mindset of total work or total labor is that if everything has to have a specific value as a result of an action, then we're going to you know, shift everything to produce the most amount of value. But sometimes the most amount of value in the short term looks very different to the most amount of value in the long term. So, um, I mean, it's a really common problem, especially within academia, is that you have to just deliver results and you have to administrate your desk and you have to do all these things. You have to teach, you have to, and you don't actually have any time to think. So when you don't have any time to think, uh, we're getting more and more superficial with what the actual eventualities and outcomes at the end are. So I think it's really, really about also rewiring and rethinking, like if we all need to be here in the productivity machine all the time, or if there could be, again, sort of space to, um, yeah, allow for leisure and um, contemplative thinking and, and creativity without necessarily having to have to come. Even with the cyborg thing, I think about like, uh, I think I would really like to see some sort of community whose purpose is literally just to just to discuss and just to contemplate without necessarily returning anything at the end of it. If you should come sense. to some of our open global mind calls. We do a lot of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I host four calls every week where we do this kind of thing. Uh, at least on two of them are more salon style where we do this all the time. Um, I want to underline what you said about time to think, because I think it's urgently important. And I'm very aware that one of the things cults do when they induct people, is they take away their time. Uh, a, a key aspect of cult process is making sure that your every minute is accounted for and you don't have time to look up and figure out how to escape, why am I doing this, wait, this doesn't make sense. But everybody else is like, no, no, got to do this, let's do that, let's memorize this, let's whatever. Um, and so, and, and even people who are trying to make sense of the world in goodwill, when we share like reading lists, hey, here's a, here's a great list of, of books to read. I now look at those lists and I'm a little bit angry because my stack of things that are already in my Kindle that are waiting to be opened and gotten back to is way too long for my mortal being, you know, the number of days I have left on the planet. Can't we dissolve this stuff together and then figure out where each of us needs to dive deep so that we understand a particular concept well, and maybe we read one in, in 20 books, but the other ones are well summarized for each other. And that's really important because... I learned a long time ago that that I wasn't reading very good history, for example. And then I met John Taylor Gatto, a retired high school teacher in New York, who said, oh, go read Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley. And I read that and I was like, oh, so that's how the finance world came about. And, and it was like 
sometimes you need to pull the curtain back on how the sausage got made in whatever it is you're curious about. And that's not in the most popular texts really often. It's in, mm. this, in these reading lists we're passing to each other. So how to digest, synthesize, and then incorporate and connect all these ideas that are floating around drowning us like microplastics in the ocean, which we're not drowning in. They're just polluting our bodies. <laughs> um, but but um, I'm, I fear that we don't treat ideas with enough either respect or ingenuity, meaning um, we don't instrument them, we don't put them to work. Um, and I, I, let me do, uh, let me riff on the instrumentation for a second. It's the wrong word. Um, but for example, um, pattern languages are big collections of wisdom <clears throat> in different areas. And there's a pattern language called liberating structures. One of the patterns in that pattern language is called one, two, four, all, which is advice to a facilitator. If you have a thorny issue, put people, give them some time alone, put them in pairs, put them in fours, bring them back to plenary. Awesome. I can see easily a Zoom applet <clears throat> that basically does that for you and says, is watching what you're doing and says, hey, Jerry, you could probably use one, two, four, all right now. Like, what is it? Okay, here's what it is. Can I help you? Can I help you run it? And then software can set up breakout rooms, name them, uh, invite people to them and manage the humans, uh, put cues in the chat, do a timer, the whole, all the choreography that makes it hard to be a good facilitator and understand that, hey, here's one, two, four, all, which might be useful, and I'm uh, going to be too much work, whatever. All that stuff could just turn into software that will help execute that bit of wisdom for you. And not all little chunks of ideas and wisdom are instrumentable. Again, wrong word. But a whole bunch of them are, and we are not doing this. We are busy, mm. like, trying to share Google Docs again and figure out how to take notes. And it's like, yeah. man, we've got, we got a shark. We got to brighten up a little bit pretty soon here. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's almost um, the sort of productivity and creativity counterparts uh, taking both to a little bit more of an extreme. So we are even more productive with certain things that we need to be productive on. And then on the creativity side, we allow even more space. Well, I, I feel like we're not honestly allowing for much space at all, but we yeah. should allow for a lot more space and a lot more time to think and, and reflection because you can't you can't have time to think and to reflect and be actually contemplative if at the end of that time to think you need an outcome that's not that's not i feel like that's like the biggest misconception of our times is i'm here to spend this day on um researching reading writing because i need to turn in this paper by x amount of time so if that's your way of dealing with it you're not you're going to come into a very different result most likely than what you could. So, um, if you were thinking about it in another way, so, uh, yeah, I I'm all for more software, uh, when it makes things better. And I'm also all for people taking just more time for themselves and reflection and the like meditation on ideas, meditation on, on thoughts rather than just active thinking. If that, if that makes any sense, I don't know if anyone else resonates with this. I just, I hope they do. My own. Yeah. <laughs> Really? I hope so too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we're we're not able to sit and be thoughtful because we're living in a society that has the cult of productivity and the cult of results and outcomes, and those things can dominate your life really quickly. Um, and yeah. I run into so many people who haven't had a chance to look up. They yeah. just they haven't. Some of them are in intense job situations where they can't look up. They just need to keep executing and doing stuff. But some of them do it to themselves, uh, and they're they're they have great intentions, and they're busy making their way through a lot of material. 
but they're not pausing and looking up. Exactly. And that means they're not able to make some of the connections they need to make to bridge to other disciplines, to other ways of seeing, to other kinds of things. Yeah, couldn't have said it better. Maybe this is a, I think this is a great ending to this podcast, so. Sweet. Thank you so much, Jerry. It was a pleasure as always. And I will make sure to link your brain to the episode description. I really uh, recommend everyone to go and have uh, a look around. Thank you. And when you told me you wanted to talk for a while about the pursuit of ideas, I was like, yes. <laughs> so I really, Let's really enjoyed meta. the conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Thank I've you. never met a meta I didn't like, so. Good. <laughs> Same.